that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. How can cities be more attentive to the needs of women and girls? How can we design, plan, and foster the ideal city for women and girls? We'll be going to special coverage of the Women Transforming Cities Conference and hearing from urban scholar Tiffany Muller Myrdal as she discusses interventions for feminist urban futures. You're tuned into the city and our dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
And welcome here on the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, uh, and that is uh, CJSF in Burnaby, coming from Burnaby Mountain. Thanks so much for tuning in. As well, you can check out the podcast and uh, retrieve it and stream it from thecityfm.org um, and also off iTunes. So lots of lots of ways to get the city and uh, get some great urban content. And that was uh, a track from Malajub uh, from Montreal, and we're going to actually go uh, first uh, to an urban news uh, roundup uh, in Montreal. Eight months after taking office with a vow to end corruption, the mayor of Montreal was arrested as, at his home early Monday by a special anti-corruption police squad. The arrest occurred as a 20-month-old public commission has uncovered widespread corruption linking politicians and organized crime in Montreal's construction industry. The police said the mayor, Michael Applebaum, faced 14 charges related to bribery involving tens of thousands of dollars. They declined to provide more details, saying that the investigation was continuing and that more arrests were likely. Television networks showed Mr. Applebaum arriving in an unmarked police car at the Montreal headquarters of the Sûreté du Québec, the provincial police force that leads the anti-corruption unit commonly known as the Hammer Squad. The police said that two of Mr. Applebaum's former associates were also arrested and charged. One, Sali uh, Zadel, was an unsuccessful conservative candidate for parliament who was given a created job that had no obvious defined responsibilities. He stepped down after uproar over his purported use of the position to act as an unelected but de facto member of parliament. Mr. Applebaum became the mayor of Montreal, Canada's second largest city, in November, after his predecessor, Gérald Tremblay, resigned as the corruption inquiry began implicating his closest associates. Mr. Applebaum is the first English speaker to hold the post in 100 years. And now we're going to go to Brazil. Um, this is and uh, sorry that uh, last report was coming from uh, the New York New York Times by Ian Austin, published on June seventeenth, two thousand thirteen. And now, uh, as I mentioned, to Brazil, uh, to a report again from the New York Times, uh, published uh, June eighteenth, two thousand thirteen. And this is coming out of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Political leaders here in Brazil's largest city brace for yet another round of demonstrations on Tuesday night by an increasingly powerful movement that has grown from complaints about bus fares to a broad challenge to, to political corruption, lavish stadium projects, the cost of living, and substandard public services. The mayor of Sao Paulo, Ferdinando Haddad, met on Tuesday morning with representatives of the protest movement, but warned that it would not be possible to revoke the increase in bus fares, citing budget re restraints in the nation's capital, Brasilia. Officials seem to be grasping for ways to engage the movement, whose protests rank among the largest and most resonant since the nation's military dictatorship ended in 1985. These voices, which go beyond traditional mechanisms, political parties, and the media itself, need to be heard, President Dilma Rousseff said in a speech on Tuesday morning. Ms. Rousseff, who has been the target of pointed criticism by some protesters, said that Brazil awoke stronger, quote-unquote, after the protests on Monday night. Quote, the greatness of yesterday's demonstrations were proof of the energy of our democracy, she said. Gilberto Carvalho, a top aide to Ms. Rousseff, said the authorities were hoping to establish a dialogue to respond to a widening movement that seems to have caught them by surprise. It would be a presumption to think that we understand what is happening, he said before senators on Tuesday morning. We need to be aware of the complexity of what is occurring. Again, that's a New York Times report uh, from June 18th by Simon Romero.
And now to Turkey, uh, where more uh, demonstrations um, and anti-government protests are occurring. This report uh, from the New York Times uh, from June 18th as well. This article by uh, Karim Fahim uh, and Sebnem Arsu out of Istanbul. Turkish anti-terrorism units arrested dozens of people in several cities early Tuesday as part of an intensifying crackdown against anti-government protests that have persisted for weeks. The semi-official Anatolian news agency said 84 people were arrested in the sweeps aimed at, quote, members of terror organizations who destroyed public property, incited the public, and attacked the police. The names of the detainees or the specific charges against them were not released. Lawyers for the detainees said that they believe the total number of protesters in custody had reached at least 176 people and that the vast majority of the arrests were on charges of illegal gathering and had nothing to do with terrorism. Among them were more than 60 members of a leftist group detained on illegal gathering charges overnight, a representative of the Bar Association in Istanbul said. The association said it knew of 20 other people who could be facing the more serious charge of belonging to an illegal organization. In Ankara, the capital, the Bar Association estimated that there had been at least 23 arrests and more than a dozen people were detained overnight in Esakir, a university town in northwestern Turkey where many students have joined the protests. Faced with the widening repression, hundreds of Turkish, Turkish protesters have adopted a new tactic in the last two days, standing still in public spaces for hours at a time. The approach appeared to have been first employed, employed on Monday by Erdem Gundaz, a performance artist who stood in the middle of Istanbul's Taksim Square for hours facing an enormous portrait of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the modern Turkish state. Mr. Gundaz told the BBC that he was practicing silent resistance. For a time, the authorities possibly befuddled left him alone until night fell, detained several other people who joined Mr. Gunda's words of the protests, sparked media and television, um, and by Tuesday, similar vigils were staged in different parts of the country and beyond, including in Ankara. As Taksim, as Taksim Square filled on Tuesday afternoon with people who stood, some with eyes closed, some reading, and some stationary for only a few moments, the police also stood and watched. Some officers took pictures. Turkey's interior minister said on Tuesday that the authorities would not interfere in the protest unless it bre breaks public order. But Prime Minister, but Prime Minister uh, Erdogan has reacted with growing annoyance to the protests, which have been given, which have given him in most serious, the most serious domestic challenge in a decade, and embarrassed him abroad. In recent days, the Prime Minister has seemed to rule out a compromise with a movement that started with protests against the planned destruction of an Istanbul park, and that has. Uh, that grew by tapping into broader complaints over what critics see as the Prime Minister's authoritarian manner. Again, that report from the New York Times, published on June 18th. And now we go to the Engaging Women Transforming Cities uh, conference, uh, hosted um, by Women Transforming Cities on May 30th of 2013, and the organization brought together municipal electeds, urban designers, and planners, and women and girls interested in transforming our cities into places where women are more involved in the elect in electoral processes and municipal governments are more responsible to the priorities of women and girls in Canada's urban centers. And over the course of the summer, we'll be bringing you highlights uh, from this inaugural event held on May 30th. 
And Dr. Tiffany Muller Myrdal is the junior Ruth Wynn Woodward Chair in Gender and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University. And uh, in the next clip, she'll be discussing interventions for feminist urban futures. And this is again here on the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CJSF 90.1 FM, and at the cityfm.org. And again, this is Dr. Tiffany Muller Myrdal. And uh, she's going to be talking about ways um, that planning, design, and politics can play into fostering um, uh, and really uh, creating a feminist urban future. I have, I have a lot of pleasure introducing Tiffany, Tiffany Dr. Tiffany Muller-Mierdal, who has been on this journey with us for over a year at least, organizing this conference. She's the junior Ruth Wynne Woodward Chair in Gender and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University. And she completed a Master in Public Policy degree in uh, 2002, followed by a PhD in geography with a certificate in feminist studies in 2008, both from the University of Minnesota. She's currently on leave from the University of Lethbridge, Alberta, where she is an assistant professor of women and gender studies. I give you a Tiffany. Yay, technology. Okay, good morning. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, more technology. I'm going to time myself. Um, I, uh, you'll hear some uh, common themes, I think, throughout the day. Uh, and I want to start by acknowledging that uh, we are on unceded Coast Salish territories. Um, and I've titled my talk, uh, Interventions for Feminist Urban Futures, and being accountable for and responsive to the ways that colonial legacies and ongoing colonial practices shape our cities is indeed an intervention that can help us uh, to build urban futures that are grounded in equity. I want to talk about a few other interventions in my uh, short address with the hope of helping us focus not only on the challenges that we face, but also on the important efforts that are already generating the momentum that we need to make cities work for women and girls and marginalized communities more generally. For me, feminist urban futures uh, is one strategy to conceptualize the politics, policies, and creative interventions that will foster more equitable cities. And I want to be clear here that I'm not talking about some unknowable time in the, in the future when it will be perfect. I'm talking about, you know, in five minutes when I'll tell you about some interventions that are happening and uh, throughout the day today when we work together to um, build recommendations. Uh, I think uh, Feminist Urban Futures is a multifaceted framework, and I'm just going to share a few points of it um, while also offering up some uh, already existing uh, interventions. So the first point I want to make is uh, 
related to the importance of framing or basically how we tell, tell stories. So in other words, it's about how we, electeds and the public more generally, frame the issues facing our cities uh, and how urban policy discourses shape the design and the future of cities. In fact, urban policies tell a story about what's allowable, right? We know what goes where because of zoning policies. And when I moved here, I was told not even to think about letting my parking meter expire because the car would be booted and towed before the ticket was even written. So urban policies tell us about what's normal, what's unquestionable. Um, which means that constructing cities that work for every resident must involve teasing apart the stories that existing policies tell us and taking lessons from how we might reframe and push policy in the direction of actually meeting the needs of our many diverse communities. So I have a couple of stories to illustrate this point. Um, the first is about a little cafe called Little Nest, which is in my neighborhood. And uh, it's a cute cafe, and it's closing in July, and news of this closing put me in a really bad mood for a good period of time. Uh, it's not a cafe that I frequent, but it's one that I appreciate because it's independently owned, it's a woman-owned business, uh, its niche is to be kid-friendly and parent-friendly, so it caters to moms and caregivers, and it brings vibrancy to a street corner that, as I understand, uh, suffered from a lack of vitality prior to the cafe's presence. And now the cafe is closing because the owner who rents the space uh, f got noticed that she would face a 50% rent increase uh, to the tune of $2,000 a month. So this, I think, is business as usual city making in Vancouver and in many other cities. Commercial property owners make unilateral decisions and are accountable to the city only in so much as the uses of the property conform to city code and zoning regulations. Yet these owners' decisions have the capacity to dramatically alter the landscape and the feel of a side street, a block, even further than that. At the same time, neither the Residents Association nor the Business uh, Improvement Society nor even the city have much capacity to intervene where quote-unquote private interests are concerned. In this capital-centric urban landscape, private owners and particularly owners of commercial property are not viewed so much as stakeholders but more as empire builders. And so we appear to be, I think, stuck in a tug-of-war. Uh, negotiating between what models of public policy frame as opposing tensions, private ownership on the one hand and public interest and implicitly social good on the other. And dog lovers in the audience can swap the titles above. <laughs> you can see where I stand on that. Uh, no, I like dogs too. Um, because power and wealth uh, tend to circulate through decision-making apparatuses of business-as-usual city-making, we are left to assume that our cities can only be shaped by trying to improve upon a model whose inherent feature is benefiting one side at the expense of another. But is this the only story that we can tell about our cities and the only model that we can use to understand how resources are shared? I think not. I, I hope not. Um, I think an alternative model to tug-of-war would suggest that neighborhoods and neighborhoods scaled up to cities can vision the future of their communities through dialogue and debate, uh, things like consultation, which I'll talk about in a second, 
um, among multiple stakeholders who identify their hopes and concerns about everything from density to streetscaping, from traffic volume to neighborhood culture. This process can reframe the fight between competing interests over limited resources to an exercise of creating a vision around a shared sense of place, community assets, and strategies to collectively address neighborhood problems. In this alternative model, commercial property owners are also considered responsible stakeholders in constructing communities. And they too must be held to account, not just for their bottom line, but for how their practices affect the culture and the sense of place in the neighborhood. The alternative model, of course, requires the hard work of communicating, uh, listening through differences, and in fact, building community, the things that Carolyn talked about in partnership. Um, and those, we have to do that with those who share our values and with those people who require us to find, to work harder, to find common ground. This model of city building demands that we reframe the players involved in city making, reevaluate their roles, and enact a different model of policy development for bringing urban futures to life. Uh, I have one more example about um, the significance of policy framing and its ability to perpetuate a kind of endless cycle of winners and losers. And here I'm going to reference our favorite uh, Canadian mayor, Rob Ford. Um, <laughs> As many of you, I'm sure, know, uh, Rob Ford came to power in part through his polarizing rhetoric about the war on the car. Uh, his strategy depicted public transit and expansion of bike lanes and traffic calming as a war on the quote-unquote average car-driving citizen of Toronto, and this war was being you know, waged by downtown living elites who benefited from the gravy train of City Hall, blah, blah, blah. Um, Ford basically framed two options. Uh, he said we keep roadways for drivers and no one else, or we get an expansion of um, alternative modes of transportation at the expense of drivers. Those were our two options. And I think it's really easy to feel compelled to engage in the e either-or scenario, which means that the folks who resent Ford's removal of bike lanes uh, and his uber-costly plan to expand uh, the subway system um, rather than use light rail uh, to, you know, put the subway underground to get, quote-unquote, out of the way of cars. It encourages an equally trenchant rhetorical style. But I think at the end of the day, what then happens is that we still get stuck in this, right? Um, uh, it's a tug-of-war where one party wins because the other loses. And it means that we take a longer time to find solutions which benefit all city residents. Personally, I would like to de declare a war on the car in Toronto because I find the culture of driving there very stressful uh, as, a, as a pedestrian, as a biker, as a driver. But the fact is that outside the very small area of, um, of Toronto covered by transit, it's really difficult to live without a car. And it's a disservice to people, particularly low-income and immigrant communities, who must rely on cars because they have been pushed out or have never been able to access the areas of the Toronto housing market that are well-served by transit. So this story cannot be con it can't continue to be either the war on the car 
or no cars welcome, it needs to be reframed as making city streets accessible to everyone following a kind of complete street uh, strategy. So I think this idea of, of framing and storytelling about cities, uh, the stakes are enormous around that. The discourses we use to describe what ails our cities, the stories we tell about our cities, in many ways determines what is possible. These discourses shape what we can imagine. We need to be able to tell stories that push policy in the progressive direction it needs to go, rather than settle for stories that leave all of the business-as-usual logics in place and prevent us from taking stock of whom the city works for and why it works this way. Fortunately, this kind of creative storytelling is already being done. So part of the task of Feminist Urban Futures is to expand the use of existing strategies both to more places and to arenas of municipal government that have resisted challenges to business-as-usual city-making, as well as to continue to develop innovative tools that make cities work for women, girls, marginalized communities. The most obvious example of this uh, to, is a tool like the equity lens, and I'm not going to say a lot about this um, because uh, Carolyn spoke to it. I think Prabhakosla is also going to speak to it um, uh, during the lunch keynote. But what I want to reiterate is the purpose of the equity lens, which is a way to evaluate all components of governance in relation to inclusion, uh, inclusion of and effects uh, on a full diversity of a city's population, women, men, trans folks, girls, boys. I want to add that this uh, model um, that this tool needs to be employed across municipal sectors. So the equity lens is often used to evaluate things like hiring practices or city program delivery, but it's not simply meant to improve the function of certain city services, like, say, pedestrian safety. Rather, it's intended to be applied across the spectrum of governance, um, from city budgets to garbage service. Uh, and in fact, just speaking from the uh, conference programming committee, that was part of our incentive for putting sustainability uh, on the agenda today in the breakout session. Um, Vancouver's Greenest City 2020 Action Plan is an important initiative that seems to be making great strides at, um, at uh, significantly reducing structural waste issues. But like many similar plans, it suffers from inattention uh, to the household scale and to the bodies who are implicated in the changes that are taking place. So specifically, whose paid and unpaid labor does the Greenest City Action Plan rely upon? Uh, as importantly, the third pillar of the sustainability matrix is um, social sustainability and there is a question about how uh, social sustainability is going to factor into the policymaking on sustainable Vancouver. Um, so my guesstimation is that the answer to this question lies in the healthy city strategy. Um, once it's underway, uh, as assuming that it happens, um, it may or may not align with the city's vision to stay, quote-unquote, on the leading edge of urban sustainability. And an equity lens would really bring these critical questions about design and policy implementation to the fore. So there are a billion more examples that I want to share with you, and I only have time to mention a few in very broad strokes. Um, I want to speak just briefly to consultative uh, processes, which 
Um, I love Mr. T here. <laughs> Consultative processes uh, range from city committees like the Women's Advisory, which WTC was born out of, the Urban Aboriginal People's Advisory uh, that Lillian Howard talked about, which is at the forefront of establishing now Re Reconciliation Year. I thought it was just Re Reconciliation Week, so that's awesome. Um, from city committees to participatory planning, like the local area planning processes that rely on resident input to vision and, in the best case scenario, design the future of the neighborhood. Participatory budgeting is now being suggested at City Hall as well, and this would give residents direct decision-making power over discretionary funding, so that's really exciting. Um, there's a growing initiative to uh, create collaborative research, uh, collaborative participatory research. Um, Examples, uh, here is a piece from a scholar called Megan Cope. Um, she worked with kids to create photo-filled maps of their neighborhoods to show where they feel safe and unsafe um, and add a sense of ownership to an already existing sense of place. Uh, just another example, a UK-based project called um, Rescue Geographies, which involves documenting people's personal experiences of their changing urban landscape as a way to involve them more closely with redevelopment schemes. So for many participatory projects, my research included storytelling and making spaces for voices that are not typically part of the business as usual urban development are really central strategies. Collaborative art practices uh, uh, demand, that demand a different kind of engagement with public spaces are another favorite example of mine around creative interventions and there are a jillion uh, Examples to choose from, this one is from uh, South Hill at Fraser and 46th, which is an aesthetic redesign of an underused empty lot and intended to facilitate community building. Um, done by Instant Coffee, which is a, a local and Toronto-based uh, collaborative art practice. Urban design uh, seems to also be coming sort of similarly democratized through tactical urbanism style activism. And an example here is in Hamilton. Uh, it's basically low-budget, short-term change that's intended to generate culture shifts in the city and, and then bring about long-term change. So in this example, an intersection cited by pedestrians as being threatening, uh, like a threatening place to cross the street, um, was given a temporary redesign to slow traffic because of the addition of pylons. And it was this strategy, not the actually endless years of uh, campaigning. Thanks. Um, or I should say probably building on the endless years of campaigning that prompted city officials to actually change uh, and buy in to um, traffic calming. So while several um, of these examples that I'm talking about here uh, are not, they don't explicitly identify themselves as feminist and that for me is okay. Um, for me if, if there is an activity that aims to address and somehow redress disparity and tackle progressive community change, it's an intervention that works toward feminist urban futures. And I'll just give one more example here. Um, so web-based uh, activism, which of course we all have many examples. I'd love to hear more from you uh, in the break. Um, this one is from a website called good.is. And it's a subsection called, uh, sub called Cities. Um, this example that I pulled features uh, Sunday Soup, 
which uses food as a catalyst to bring people together and create opportunities for conversation and social change in Detroit, and apparently happens in cities uh, at least around the U.S., if not around the world. So um, I'm still a scholar, though, so I have to uh, hasten to add here that there's always a risk of romanticizing participation. And I want to be very clear that uh, it still matters who shows up for these voluntary sessions. If there's no investment on the part of the city, for example, to ensure the diversity of voices um, by doing things like offering food, free childcare, transit passes, holding them at various times so different people can be involved, um, these processes lose their capacity to function as a force of progressive change. Moreover, community engagement must be more than just lip service, uh, which brings me basically to the overall points I want to make about the toolkit that I've been talking about, um, namely that they have to be tweaked as well. There's often a massive gap between participatory process and policy. So to name one example, advisory committees and local area planning processes have an important capacity to make recommendations and even identify demands, but those demands are often toothless, uh, and they are situated still within this tug-of-war model where the city sees itself as needing to take a less interventionist approach to th things like, for example, um, developers who promise to raise the city's tax base uh, through some residential development project. So all of this means that actually uh, encouraging people to participate with no commitment that their concerns will be taken seriously risks reinforcing already existing feelings of disenfranchisement. It's also worth noting uh, that there is still a tangible bias as to what kind of knowledge is perceived as valid and therefore valuable, which means that certain voices and certain bodies become less hearable or legible in the participatory process. Uh, and we can imagine what this looks like, right? People who are racialized in particular ways or othered in particular ways who have certain experiences that make others feel uncomfortable in the act of sharing, um, experiences like racism and, and violence, all of these embodied experiences of urban life are often uh, framed as being of questionable value in participatory process, in process that quite honestly place stock in a more middle class version of expertise. Uh, so experiences of the city that are marked as too different to be legible uh, in quote-unquote traditional engagement processes are often relegated to more experimental sites like storytelling. And while I am a you know, massive advocate for sharing stories as a way to negotiate social inclusion and create policy, I can also tell you that uh, stories shared in experimental sites are often even further outside the scope of a policymaker's attention. So as with anything else, we must be critically thoughtful in our adoption and use of engagement strategies and tools that we want to serve as interventions for feminist urban futures. Uh, and, we, and it goes without saying that we should never assume that that battle has been won for good. Um, uh, this is from earlier this year, Reclaim Prior. Um, some... Some challenges need to be confronted over and over again. Traffic calming, you know, when it's ignored, uh, you just need to keep confronting the city with it. 
So in closing, I want to offer that this vision is not uh, one-dimensional, it is intersectional and feminist, which means that feminist urban futures does not and cannot fo focus exclusively on women. As we know, it's not simply along lines of gender and gender identity that women face discrimination. We all contend with the ways that class and race, able-bodiedness and sexuality, age and immigrant status, and all markers of visible and invisible difference are mutually produced and they structure our experiences of being othered. And those uh, experiences are different in different places. Um, the ways that our identities are felt and experienced uh, are intimately tied to these spaces that we occupy. So the complexity of our lives requires our focus uh, to be on equity, but not through the singular lens of gender. And at the same time, we need to ensure, and this I think is really tough, we need to ensure that gender doesn't disappear. So my very last point, I promise, uh, I'm really pleased to be a relative newcomer to the massive Divided Cities research team, which is now a six-city study that examines rising income inequality uh, across Canada. So far, this research has done amazing uh, an amazing job illustrating what it means for places like Toronto and Vancouver, for example, to become more gentrified within ur the urban core and what this means for the ongoing displacement of the working poor, whether or not that work is paid or unpaid, um, as well as what it means for new immigrants. And the slide here uh, speaks to recent immigrants by census tract, and I'm sorry I couldn't fit them on the same slide. The slide here is average household incomes, and what we all uh, uh, see is that the uh, areas with less racialized, uh, fewer people of color, fewer new immigrants uh, um, are uh, wealthier. And of course, that's com more complicated in, in Vancouver, um, but that is the general trend. Uh, what it doesn't tell us what this data doesn't tell us, though the stats should be readily available at the census tract level, is how disproportionately represented women are in low-income CMAs. So we need to reclaim this analysis for our own ends and make sure gender remains a central concern and consideration. So the tasks ahead of us uh, are perhaps daunting, but I think together as people transforming cities to be the ideal places they can be for women and girls and all who have been historically left out of traditional city-making processes, we can face this challenge confidently. Thank you. You are listening to the Terry Project. Terry Project. The Terry Project. Terry Project podcast from CITR. CITR 101.9 FM. Here at UBC. The University of British Columbia. In Vancouver. To find out more, even more, about the Terry Project, visit our website at terry.ubc.ca. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My one big idea is priceless. What can be better than that? And you're listening here to The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and another fantastic program uh, produced here at CITR. Uh, check it out, The Terry Project, and I think their website is uh, theterryproject.ca, uh, but you can also find uh, their podcast and uh, the showtime. 
um, at the website citr.ca. So they cover a whole diversity of issues and do a fantastic job uh, doing that. So uh, in the last uh, uh, bit of the show, you heard from... Um, that was Tiff, Dr. Tiffany Muller Myrdal, and she's the junior Ruth Wynn Woodward Chair in Gender and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University uh, here in Burnaby, and uh, discussing uh, ways that uh, we can look to planning and look to design and look um, more broadly to politics in the city um, as a way to uh, really foster and intervene to create that feminist urban future, uh, one that is attentive um, and uh, realizes um, the diverse needs um, of women and girls in our cities. And that was uh, brought to us um, from, that was a, a lecture from the Engaging Women Transforming Cities uh, 2013 inaugural national conference held on May 30th at uh, SFU's downtown campus in Vancouver. So over the course of the summer, we're going to be bringing more uh, content from that conference um, around uh, one uh, quite wonderful discussion uh, that we'll be bringing in coming weeks is one on housing justice and housing rights in the city of Vancouver, again through a feminist urban lens, um, attentive to gender and gender relations. So that's something that I'm uh, looking forward to and uh, really excited to bring that, that coverage uh, to the program. And additionally, uh, lots of other um, things that will appear uh, periodically, appear periodically uh, throughout the next uh, couple months. Um, another one would be uh, implementing an equity lens and applying that into policy um, and the way we look at issues in the city and how those issues develop. Um, and often gender um, is not... Um, you know, in that, in the way, in the analysis or in the evaluation of um, of certain priorities or policy objectives in perhaps the way it should be. So uh, being attentive to things like race, class, and gender. And so thinking about all of these things, and we can apply what, um, what uh, Dr. Um, Myrdal uh, really spoke about is, is the equity lens. So how do we see all these things through an equity lens um, with um, questions of um, equity in mind? We're going to go to some music um, for the remainder of the program. And again, if you're just tuning in, uh, this is The City on CATR. Check it out at thecityfm.org. And we're going to go to a track now from Aura uh, Kogan. And this is off her latest release, um, Ribbon Vine. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Again, CATR.ca, CJSF.ca. This is The City.
Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And if you missed any part of the program, you can download it as a podcast at thecityfm.org. 
And you can catch The City live on CITR Tuesdays at 5 p.m. And we're syndicated on CJSF, Burnaby Fridays at 10 a.m. And be sure to check out The City on Twitter with the handle the city underscore FM. And on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. And again, you can find this program as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And be sure to leave your comments or suggestions for programming, for guests, um, anything that uh, you think should be on air and should be discussed on the program. You can leave that on uh, the website or on the Facebook page or tweet it, um, the city underscore FM as well. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Uh, we're going to go out with a track uh, from Synthcake. And uh, just before uh, the uh, the last two songs, I should say, were uh, from the uh, Helotrons um, and then uh, Tegan and Sarah. We're going to go again with a track with Synthcake. Uh, thanks for listening. This is The City. Uh, Flex Your Heads coming up next live here on CITR. And you've got uh, Democracy Now! if you're listening syndicated on CJSF. Thanks again for tuning in. Back next week. we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all-ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get involved, check out www.safeamp.org.